Our Father, once again, we're so thankful that we can come uh, in freedom to gather around your word that is made available to us in our language. We realize tonight the work that you expended down through history to preserve the text, to see that it was translated properly, to see that at many times it was almost destroyed, and yet you always preserved a certain stream of manuscripts so that tonight we can sit with this book in our lap and read your very words. We ask now that the Spirit who preserved the text and gave it to us would illuminate our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Again, to uh, review, we're still on the call of Abraham and we're looking at that event in history just after the beginning of civilization uh, when all the nations had been formed. There had been the separation of the nations into languages, families, and so forth. And you remember that we said that paganism had already come to replace the truths of the Noahic Bible, that all tribes, all continents, all places at one time had the revelation contained in those first nine chapters of the Bible but that by the time of the Tower of Babel, there was a powerful paganistic movement born of the flesh and of Satan to divert worship and attention from the God who had created and gave that revelation to man. And we've been stressing, and we ought to go back to that text tonight, if you'll turn to Genesis 11, because we can't repeat enough times the contrast in spirit between that movement of civilization that culminated in the great Tower of Babel and the new movement that God created by calling Abraham out of the world system. Once again, Genesis 11:4. This is a hallmark verse that summarizes the spirit behind civilization at large when that civilization becomes autonomous proudful and separated from the listening to the authority of the word of God. Verse 4 of Genesis chapter 11, Come, let us build for ourselves a city whose tower, whose top will reach unto heaven, and let us build for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad. And we reminded you last time that that last clause, lest we be scattered abroad, is a direct contradiction to what God had told the human race to do in the way of covenant. So it's disobedience, and as all disobedience usually does, it creates a counterfeit because we are made in God's image after all, and when we uh, rebel against him, we become our own gods. It's no man can remain neutral. No man ever is neutral. Either we are God or God is God, but there's no such thing as a person who's neutral. Romans chapter 1 and so forth. And here we see it because... In those clauses in verse 4, it's especially notice the middle one, let us make for ourselves a name. It means that meaning and truth originate with man. And we kind of have a little um, proverb to show this, is that in a pagan basis of thinking and living, man invents truth. If we go to the Word of God and submit to the authority of the, the Creator and the fact that there's structure and intelligence and information embedded in the universe around us, then we do not invent truth. 
we discover it. So there's a world of difference between the verb to invent and the verb to discover. And that somehow shows the, the, some of the contrast that goes on here in the Bible between the world system at large. And then we come to Genesis chapter 12, that call of Abraham. And when God called Abraham out, among his many things, he promised him the land, the seed, and the worldwide blessing. But in verse 2, he directly conflicts with Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Whereas in Genesis 11:4, man was going to make for himself a name. Now God says to Abraham, I will make your name. I am the one who defines meaning. I am the authority. So now we have two programs at large in history. The program that is the apostate fallout from the early turning away from the Noahic revelation and the new theme introduced when Abraham is called out around the year 2000 B.C. We said out of that comes uh, several doctrines or truths. And the truths that we have been studying, the truth of election, tonight we're going to deal with justification, and your notes that passed out uh, tonight for next time will be on faith. So we have three topics of biblical truth that we want to look at and see in the light of this event of the call of Abraham. These are truths that the New Testament insists are wrapped up with this event. So, because the New Testament writers keep doing this, it's a clue to us that we better use those events in linkage with that doctrine and with that truth so we can imagine what, what it's all about. So last week we dealt with election. We said it's a very hard doctrine. But in a nutshell, what it simply says is God's choosing. God not only is choosy, but God has a right to be choosy. He's the creator. And you remember we said in the notes, we kind of summarized election under some principles, and we just kind of comment and review on those. We said, first of all, on page 30, that this election cannot be handled, cannot be understood apart from creation. The creator-creature distinction, once again, Abraham was called out of polytheism and pantheism, out of paganism at large, where God is part of the universe. And all the pagan origin stories, the universe is always considered to be an appendage of God. It always comes out of the bodies of the gods. You can't distinguish between water, material water, and the goddess of water. They, they both come together in paganism. But in the, God, in the, in the Bible, he pre-exists his creation. And he calls it into existence, not by procreation. See, the, the, in the pagan thing, sexual propagation is a powerful force. It is always considered to be the heart of everything. And in modern paganism, it's still the same idea that you have the transmutation of the species in this mysterious sexual propagation. But in the scriptures, the universe doesn't come into existence at all by sexual propagation. It comes into, into existence by virtue of God speaking it into existence. And, of course, in modern terms, what we have here is the uh, giving of information. And this is, a, this is a powerful concept. People have problems with how rapidly God created the universe. But if you can think of yourself trying to rebuild an engine in a car and you're sitting out there and you haven't got a clue and you're holding everything from valves to pistons to distributors 
in your hand, you've got a mess all over the, the backyard, and you're trying to put that together as an engine, you're going to do that in a random way. It's going to take you some time. But if somebody else comes in, like we have a couple of guys in this church that are just whizzes at it, they come at it, and how fast does it take them to build the engine? Not long. What's different? The engine? Parts? People? Strength? No. The difference is the information available. The information available. So when you have a high information event, as is given in Scripture, when God speaks the universe into existence, you have an infinite compression of information. Of course, he doesn't have to take time. He doesn't have to because the information is available. The information doesn't have to be generated. It's already there in God's mind. So the doctrine of election falls back onto the doctrine of creation. can't have one without the other. And we said the second thing is that election also arrests upon the fall on page 31 because there the fall is seen to have marred the pot. So it's not that God is considering an unmarred pot. He's considering the human race after the whole thing screwed up, after there was a falling away. Then after that, he steps in and manifests his election. And we said, and the third point on the doctrine of election is in verse in, 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 cha- in chapter page 32. Following Hebrews 11, election reveals what's on God's mind. And before He reveals what is on His mind, we can't predict that. It's much like the physicists today talk about things that go on in the atom. Sometimes they speak of a surprise event. It's a meaning that there's no predictable way of, of figuring it out. It happens. A certain state happens. And we call that a surprise event. Well, the election, when God acts in history, it's a surprise event. It can't be forecast. You can't sit down and have a magic book and predict that that person is going to believe and that person isn't going to. I have no way of doing that. We are told to preach the gospel to every creature. And that's it. And the gospel is the means that God calls the elect into historical existence. And so, on page 33, I said that on that top paragraph, I forgot to put this in, but if you would write uh, in the last, uh, on that top paragraph on, on page 33, if you just write in after the question mark would have enough, if you'd write this sentence, I'd like to put this sentence in there so that people uh, will have a, um, a clear thought about this. Gospel preaching is not an impotent, superficial act. Gospel preaching is not an impotent, superficial act. Semicolon. It is the powerful call of God that creates the elect in history. It is the powerful call of God that creates the elect in history. Now, of course, in God's mind they're there, but in history they're not there until God calls them. And the the gospel preaching hardens hearts or it softens them. It's not a a trivial, casual thing, this thing called the preaching of the gospel. We can't treat it as something casual. And people, you may you may witness to someone, you may preach to someone, and they you know you just wonder, good grief, are they awake or not? And it goes on year after year after year. But that's that's what we think is happening. We don't know what's going on in their heart. 
And because we don't know what's going on in their heart, we keep on faithfully because God tells us to do that. And you'll get the results. He'll give the results. But our job is to be as clear as we possibly can in preaching the gospel. And I said the fourth point that we dealt with last time is that God, uh, election is God's basic eternal promise to you and me. If he has predicted that we will share the destiny of Jesus Christ, then he has also included in that statement that he will provide all things. He says to Abraham, I will make a seed for you. Now, those of you who I hope have skimmed through Genesis now from 12 to 40, 12 to 50, you realize all those little stories in there were included in that promise, I'm going to give you a seed. And when Sarah almost gets wound up in Pharaoh's harem, if she had done that and that had been allowed to happen, we'd have a problem with the seed because she was supposed to be the one that would bear it through Abraham. So all the stories that you see in Genesis are woven around this theme of the Abrahamic covenant. Is God's promises, the land, the seed, and the blessing, going to come to pass or aren't they? And the lesson we learn from Genesis 12 on to the end of the book is that God's way of bringing about his promise involves cliffhanging. The, the lines get thin, the danger gets high. It's, a, it's an ongoing drama. And you almost think God's going to get defeated. It, God never majestically moves and totally crushes the opposition. It's like he's a super chess player. And for a while, it looks like all of his pieces get wiped out. And yet he always comes up the winner at the end. And that's the story of Genesis 12. So... That's what we mean when we say God's election is God's basic eternal promise to us. Now, tonight, we go to the second of these two ideas. And I said last time that we want to spend some time on this truth because it is this truth that divided Europe. It caused revolutions in Europe. This truth. This is where Protestantism and Catholicism separated. And yet today, you can go in the average evangelical church and I guarantee you, if you do a theological survey, you will find over half the people are Roman Catholics at heart. Because they don't understand what is the Protestant view of justification. What did Martin Luther and John Calvin believe about this? And you say, is this some abstract theology? I hope after tonight we go through this, you'll see this is not abstract. This was born out of the personal experience of godly men who at that time were inside the Roman Catholic Church doing their best and had failing in their personal spiritual lives. And they sought an answer to why they experienced failure in their Christian walk. And it was found and they were led to see that there was uh, an aberration that had happened. The Word of God was not readily available. I mean, there were many, many priests, village priests, at that time who had no access to Scripture. So it's not like everybody had their Bible and and couldn't read. It was that hardly anybody had the Bible. You had a lot of tradition going on uncontrolled by the Scripture. And the result was that you had the Gospel very diluted and you had a lot of people kind of born again, but barely so in this sort of environment. So tonight we want to look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And you remember that when we went to hear before, we said that 
the, the crucial thing to notice is this is the chapter when God makes his covenant with Abraham. We already went through the, the covenant and we said that that covenant involved a deal between God and Abraham plus Abraham's seed. And that there were certain terms in that contract, that that contract was brought into existence through a sacrifice, blood sacrifice, as God's covenants always are, pointing forward to the time of the cross. But that this, this covenant, this, the terms of this covenant was a legal contract, and that meant that God was pinned down in history to doing certain things. And you want to notice this because it happened in the Noahic covenant, it happens in the Abrahamic covenant, and will happen in the other covenants. And we said, as just a parenthesis, is here is why, folks, we evangelicals are strong on inerrancy of Scripture. It's tied in with the fact that the Scriptures purport to represent the proper behavior of God in light of His promises. And by proper behavior of God, we mean that he did this, he did that, he did this, he did that in real history. So that the dates, the circumstances, and the events in this record we, ha- we share, this is a legal testimony to God's faithfulness. And if there are errors in this, as there would be, for example, in a courtroom hearing, The lawyer always attempts to show inconsistencies in the witness to get the jury to doubt it. And in this case, if Satan can show there are inconsistencies here, he can appeal his case that God indeed is not faithful. You can't trust this. There are errors in it. So the idea of an inerrant Bible springs out of the whole idea of having God in a covenant contractual agreement with people with a contract that can be open and read of all men. And we said, we quoted Dr. Albright of, of uh, Johns Hopkins years ago, father and dean of American archaeology, who made the stunning observation that the Hebrews are the only people in history to make a contract with their God. Only one. Don't find Buddhists making contracts. Buddhist was an atheist. You don't find Confucius making a contract with heaven. Confucius tells us he doesn't really know what goes on in heaven. You don't find um, Hindus entering into a contract with their God. This is is the purview of Scripture. The God of the Bible enters into covenant. And hence he is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's one of his titles. So, in Genesis chapter 15, 6, before... He enters into the sacred covenant with Abraham. There's a statement. We want to look at that statement tonight. The statement summarizes Abraham's condition on the eve of that contract. It says, he believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Some of your Bibles have, he imputed it to him for righteousness. So, the condition is, Abraham believes. And God credits or imputes. Now, that's a word that occurs a lot in the New Testament. So, we want to spend some time talking about the word impute. 
So if you turn in your notes to page 34, we look at that first point under the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification rests like the other doctrines on the creation and the fall. See how, why last year we spent all year long going through creation, fall, flood, and covenant? You say, why do we spend so much time going through? Gosh, that was slow. It's slow because every time you get into this, we're going back to it again. That's why we wanted to lay that foundation right, solid. Now, here tonight is an example of why it's so important to see that early passage of Scripture. This word, to impute, means to price. If you have a good or a service and you put a price tag on it, You've imputed value to it. Now, who imputes value? Let's think about this for a minute. It used to be thought, for example, in early American history, when the pilgrims first came and the Puritans formed the Massachusetts Bay Colony and did, did their culture thing, they, at first, in their economy tried to hold to what is called the doctrine of the fair price. And what they did was attempt to regulate how much you could charge for a good or service in Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was price regulation. The idea was that there was such a thing as a fair and just price. And if you, if you made furniture or if you made some product or you did some service, that you could not charge more than that fair price. To do anything more than that would be to rip off your customers and be unfair competition and so forth and so on. So at that time, they, they had what we call government price controls, wage and price controls. But early on, the Puritans, thankfully, realized that there was a flaw in that kind of thinking and they abandoned wage and price controls. Now, this is where some political fallout happens from the scripture. And you say, well, why did they do that? Because they realized several things. First, that who is it that determines the fair and just wage? Where do you determine that? Where do you get that from? Big brother? A group of a few people? And so the argument is made that rather than have a board of people and authorities dictating what the fair and just price is, what do you do, what do you let dictate price in our country? Generally, how a price is determined? By the market. We call that the free market economy. Why do we let the market determine the price? For example, uh, pornography might be priced by the market greater than the Bible. Now, what's the Christian answer to this? Does it mean that the market always justly prices an item? Not, not so at all. But on the other hand, isn't it, isn't it safer to let the marketplace dictate the price? Because in the marketplace, who consists of the market? Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. Their pricing, their functioning as individual human beings, and they're determining the price by how much they're willing to pay for the good. So, yeah, a lot of them can be wrong. But the, the advantage is you don't have an error imposed on everybody. So you, you, it's, a, it's a relaxation. But rather than getting too far into the economics, what I'm trying to get at here is that the human heart is made to evaluate the things it treats, its goods and services. 
The picture, first picture in the Bible of pricing is given in the first six days of creation. What does God do after he gets through his handiwork? God is pictured as a blue-collar laborer in his first picture in Scripture. He's a craftsman that he makes things. And what does he do at the end of the day? He sets his work aside and he says, that's good. Adam isn't saying it. God's saying it. The craftsman is saying of, it, of his craft, this is good. He's pricing it. He's evaluating it. So this word impute in its raw, original, plain meaning was this word, to price, to put a price on something, to evaluate it. Then it came to have another sense, um, which we'll get into in, in a little bit further on here. But I want to go to Genesis chapter 3 a moment to see what happened at the fall. Originally, Adam was to subdue the earth and bring forth the fruit thereof. In Genesis chapter 3, after the curse, we have a disturbance. Sin disturbs not just psychologically, but physically. The universe, we said, and we've shown this so many times, but we're going to do it because I believe in review and repetition. We've talked about this again and again, the difference between the Bible and everything else. In the Bible, evil is bounded. There was a time when there was no evil and it started. And there is a time at the end of history when it will be dealt with. In all other religions, evil is considered to be normal. And that's why intelligent people in the Orient for years have, gone, have striven to go into a nirvana or to basically a psychological form of suicide. Why do they do that? Because they don't want to be reincarnated again and again in this, in this foul, evil, death-filled world. Who wants to go around again? So I want to get off the merry-go-round. Well, how do I get off of it? Go into non-existence. And that's your oriental religion. That's New Age. Except most people in this country don't think it through. If you really want to see where New Age leads, you re read Hinduism. That's where you get a real idea of where it's going. But in the Bible, evil is bounded. And here in Genesis chapter 3, something abnormal happens in verse 18. Here Adam was to grow crops that could be sold, that were to have a price, that were to have a value. But God says when you go... To work the ground, verse 17, the ground is cursed and in toil you eat of it all the days of your life and it brings forth thorns and thistles. In other words, it becomes inefficient. Two things happen here. Work and labor become terribly inefficient and this is an act of mercy because if man could make his wealth easily, he would pervert its use. So this is why we struggle, all of us, try to make ends meet. If, we, if it were too easy, we're sinful beings. And we, all, all that wealth has shown, the sin nature is, that it makes it sin more efficiently in more grandiose ways. So the first thing that happens is, is that work and labor become tremendously inefficient. And the second thing is, there actually is a deformation in what is grown. There is negative value out there. Stuff is produced that's bad. And that's because of the fall. So, 
the first point about justification is that man who was destined to produce work that would be priced as good by God now hardly can produce anything because of the disruption and what he does produce is terribly flawed and basically is evil. And on God's scale, God's price scale, if we can draw a scale of numbers here, we're going to use this several times tonight, minus one, zero, plus one. Just draw simple integers. On this scale, man is over here. He's in negative territory. What he produces is not just worthless, but it's dangerous. It's negative. And we know this. And this is why, further up in the text, in verse 7, when they realized that they had sinned, they tried to cover it up. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Nobody told them to do that. But suddenly they were ashamed to be in the presence of God as he had made them. Something had happened. They were now no longer acceptable in his presence and they knew it. And hence the rise of guilt, real guilt. So the result of this is, is that the thorns and thistles motif occurs various places. Proverbs 24, I give you an illustration where it's used. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 are also other passages in the Bible where you see this thorns and thistles theme. And it universally has, as a metaphor, it becomes the evil production of man. Okay, so the first thing about justification is that it's, it arises out of the idea of pricing things. And eventually it has a deeper idea. Now, a man is priced by what he produces because what he produces shows his character. And his character is judged before God. So that's how this, this, this uh, economic thing gets wrapped up into it. All right, the second thing is that justification must be the first step in justification. Now, what we want to do here is turn over to Romans chapter 4, where Paul deals with justification in Abraham. And he makes a very important point in Romans chapter 4, verse 10. He asks the question, when was Abraham justified? He was justified in Romans chapter 4.10. Paul says, um, by the way, notice verse 9. Look up in Genesis chapter, I mean, uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 9, and you'll see some of you have it in caps, or some of, you, some of your translations have it in quotes or something. Faith was reckoned Abraham as righteousness, or you'll see that Genesis 15, uh, 6 quote there in the text. Paul is just reciting what the same text that we just got through looking at. Now, he says, verse 10 is a comment on that Genesis text. So here the Apostle Paul is teaching us out of the Old Testament. And he says, how was it reckoned? While he was circumcised, that is, after the covenant, or uncircumcised before the covenant? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe. And he's making the pitch here that how was Abraham justified? As a Jew or as a Gentile? He was justified as a Gentile. 
So there, so this is this is tremendously powerful because I mean, who is the father of the Jewish race here? It's Abraham. So if you can show that the father of the Jewish race was saved as a Gentile, then what Paul's done in a very clever one swoop, he's just wiped out the arrogance of saying there's some special race and you're saved only if you're Jewish. You see? Well, what we want to see for our application is that the verdict of Abraham's righteousness was made before God entered into a covenant with him. Before God went into this treaty and made this contract, Abraham had to be declared righteous. But what is required of... What is this righteousness descendants? All right, we, we've introduced it as an economic term. Now I want to move from the economics to the legal area. So to hold a place in Romans 4, because we'll go back there in just a minute. Turn back in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 25. Here's an example of how the concept worked. The word justification in a legal sense. Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. talking about the court system. The Bible has a lot to say about lawyers, judges, and courts. Not well known today, we might add. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, it says, If there is a dispute between men, and they go to court, and the judges decide their case, and they justify the righteous, and they condemn the wicked... Now, who would be the righteous person? He was one who obeyed the law. Who was the unjust one? One who disobeyed. Let's go to the diagram now. Minus one, zero, and plus one. Justification does not mean just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned would bring me back to zero. But zero can't exist right now because zero was a state that existed only at one point in history that probation period between the time when God created Adam and Eve and the time they fell. Now, we're, the probation period is over. We don't go back to a probation period. So, we're now, instead of three possibilities, this one, this one, and this one, the middle one's knocked out. That's no longer a historical option. So, either we disobey God or we obey Him. So, the justified one is the one who, at that particular point of the law that was being brought up in the trial, that area, he obeyed. So, the idea of justification isn't just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if I'd perfectly obeyed. That's what justification is. It has a positive side as well as a negative. And we want to dwell on that a moment, because that's missing in a lot of our thinking. It's not just forgiveness. There's more to, more to justification than forgiveness. Forgiveness takes you back to zero. It forgives the sin that we've done. Justification takes us further and gives us positive righteousness. Now, here became the big problem in the Reformation. Now, if you turn to Romans 4. We'll be referring to some things in Romans 4. The idea of justification is... That in this covenantal agreement, to start the covenant, Abraham already had to have this positive righteousness. Before the covenant went into effect, God doesn't have fellowship with a sinner. 
So if God is going to have fellowship and do something in this man he calls out from this world system, the man has got to be legally cleared. And what we saw in Deuteronomy 25.1 is a verdict that happened at a point in time. The court reached a verdict. And the verdict was that the person obeyed. What, therefore, Paul is saying is that Abraham, before the covenant, God had a trial. Abraham passed the verdict. So the verdict was passed that Abraham was righteous. All right, so the second point of justification is that it's the starting point of everything else that God does. A lot of people have the idea that you start at zero. You start for being forgiven and then you work from there. That's not, what's, not, not the idea of justification. The idea of justification is you start from perfect obedience. Now, herein is what ruptured Europe because the Catholics and the Protestants went after it for centuries over this one. This may sound like a theoretical thing, but people got burned for saying this kind of stuff. This was heavy material. So, we move to the third thing then. The first one was that the concept of justification grows out of the creation motif, the economic idea that, I, that the creature has a value and he's supposed to be valued. And you have to, as people evaluate. Well, you move from there to who evaluates ultimately and absolutely and clearly. I gave you the illustration that pornography may cost more in the newsstand than a Bible. But the answer to that is, if God were to walk in the store, what would his price tag be? He'd refuse to buy it. What happens to a product that sits on the shelf? Price goes, right? So, the point was that if you had a godly pricing mechanism, then you would have just and fair prices. Problem is, none of us are perfectly just or wise in the way we price things. Well, what we say in, in, in justification is God is the pricer or the evaluator. He puts a price tag on us. He has, that's his prerogative as judge. The second point in justification is that he does this in the form of a verdict prior to entering into a relationship with us. So the third thing then answers the question, well, where does this righteousness come from? If you look at Romans chapter 5, Verse 19, one of the clearest verses in the New Testament. Where is the righteousness coming from that is credited to our account? It says, by the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. Just as by the disobedience of Adam, many were made sinners. So we now come to this interesting truth in justification that man has to be credited with an, a positive righteousness but he doesn't generate it. You no more generate positive righteousness than I do or any other person does. We don't live perfectly. We can't be priced. God can't put a price tag on our character as perfectly righteous. We know that. So how do we get the price function? How does he price us? He prices us by beholding another righteousness that he credits to our account. And that righteousness is Christ's righteousness. So that's why 
it's not just the death of Christ. The death of Christ on the cross forgives. That takes us from minus one to zero. That's the forgiveness of sin. But the obedience that Jesus Christ is a representative of the human race who was a genuine human being, who was the second Adam, who faced every trial we, try, we face, who learned obedience through the things which he suffered, he always made the right choices. His life was perfect before God. Now there's a representative who has lived the perfect life in history. Not longer a promise, but actual righteousness. Not something that was a speculation of, gee, I wonder if somebody can ever do this right. Jesus did it right. And so therefore, the, and of course, it's tied to the cross. It's not separated from the cross because the cross itself is what? An act of obedience. It's the greatest act of obedience that any human being would ever face. The Garden of Gethsemane. So, it's still the cross. We haven't gotten away from the cross. But it's another side to the cross. The cross, as an atonement, gets us to zero. But as an act of obedience of a human being, Jesus Christ had true humanity as well as undiminished deity. And when he faced a trial in this life, this is the whole area of who Jesus is, Jesus never relied on his deity to get through the trials. He relied on the Holy Spirit in his humanity just like we have to. So, we can't argue, well, Jesus had it easier. No, he didn't. In fact, he had it harder because he faced trials on a plane far above the temptation pressures we will ever face. That's what the Gethsemane episode is in the Gospels. He had us personally in mind, had you personally in mind, had me personally in mind when he did that act of obedience. And that's how he got to the cross. So the cross, in two ways, is a blessing. It's a blessing because it's a source of atonement for our sin. And it's a blessing because Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly and made, for the first time in history, perfect righteousness became available. So just as Adam's perfect unrighteousness became available, disobedience is spread upon the human race, so all those who come into faith in Christ share Christ's righteousness. So righteousness now has a positive thing. So if you look on page 36 of the notes, here's one of the early Reformed creeds and how they struggled to phrase this. So what we want to do is want to separate this stuff. Now it's true, they're all connected. You don't have one without the other. There's, there's controls in here. But we want to see what happens when you do the salad bowl approach. Let's look on the notes again on page 36. The idea that justification is due to a righteousness from outside of man rather than from inside him has not always been welcomed within the church. Such imputation of Christ's obedience to the sinner seems to be a legal fiction that ascribes to man something he really does not have. For a sinner to be credited with perfection he has not shown in his personal life is seen by many as a threat to godly living. Many times in church history, therefore, teachers have tried to base justification upon the condition of the sinner's heart. While acknowledging Christ as the source of it all, these teachers claim that his righteousness is actually transfused into the sinner's heart first as a basis for subsequent justification. The work of regeneration and or sanctification then becomes the precursor of the verdict of justification. 
So the idea, if you can draw it in a timeline, what, the teach, what they try to do to control things is to have the sinner here. The sinner believes and is regenerated at this point in time. The regeneration starts the seed of righteousness in the heart. Then God looks down on that seed of righteousness in the heart and says, you're justified. So that justification is a follow-on act to regeneration. All right, continuing on the notes on page 36. When Protestants like Luther and Calvin taught justification by faith alone, without any such precursor righteousness in the heart, Roman Catholicism fought back. The Council of Trent in 1545 declared in opposition to Protestantism. And this is the Catholic answer to the Protestant doctrine. If they were not born again in Christ, they would never be justified, since in that new birth there is bestowed upon them through the merit of His passion the grace whereby they are made just. And I, I pause right here. It's, not, it's wrong to accuse Catholics of believing in justification by works. They really don't. They've tried very hard to make justification by grace. Notice what they're saying. The new birth is there bestowed upon them through the merit of His passion, the grace whereby they are made just. So they're, they're insisting that in their view, it is by grace. And as Protestants who say Catholics believe in justification by works just don't understand Catholicism. In one sense, they're right when they say that. That's not the point of the debate, though. Let's continue. Justification is not only the bare remission of sins, but also sanctification and renewal of the inner man. Now, look at that sentence again, and I'll read it slowly. Notice what they do. Justification is the sanctification and renewal of the inner man. What have they done that's different than importing righteousness from outside? They're making the righteousness come through the heart so that it is actual righteousness possessed by me and by you. Given from Christ, but nevertheless in our hearts. God looks at our hearts and says, now we're justified. The Protestants said that is not the order. The order is that when we believe Him and submit to His authority, He grants us righteousness not through our hearts. He, he, he makes us born again, of course. They're not denying regeneration. They're just simply saying you can't say regeneration precedes justification. They happen simultaneously. Justification is from Christ. It is Christ's obedience that suddenly is credited to my account that allows God to enter into a relationship with me. If, in fact, justification is looking here, what's the trouble down here? What was Martin Luther's trouble in the, in the Catholic monastery? He looked in his heart. And what did he see in his heart? Along with genuine fruit, what else did he see? Sin. And that's why Luther struggled and struggled and struggled. How do I deal with this? How can God have a relationship with me when, yes, the Holy Spirit's word in my heart, but I'm not perfect before Him? How can I be justified before a holy God? How can I be on speaking terms with Him legally? How can He touch me? And the answer is, He can. Unless He sees you as in Christ, then He can touch you. Because now he sees Christ's righteousness. And now we can begin the work of sanctification. So the Protestant argued that the Catholic doctrine actually prevented sanctification from ever getting started. It couldn't get started because there was no basis for it to get started with. 
And what it did, it tended to focus. Watch the difference here. If you genuinely believe that your righteousness before God comes from Christ versus thinking your righteousness comes from God because of a work He might have done in your heart, where is the center of attention? One is on Christ. We'll get into this when we deal with the next set of notes, which is faith. What is saving faith? The emphasis in the Protestant gospel was that you look at Christ. Always look at Christ because it's His righteousness. And stop looking at your heart, because all you see in your heart is a bunch of glop. Now, this is not loose living, because they, they talked about sanctification, confession of sins, and so forth. But they didn't make the human heart the basis of my assurance of acceptance before God. It's not my heart that makes me acceptable before God. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ that makes me acceptable with God. This is tough stuff. So... That was the fight in, in Catholicism. And if you look on the top of page 37 again, the ban is placed. This is still uh, quoting Trent. The ban is placed. This is excommunication. The excommunication is placed on any who teach that man is justified through imputation of the righteousness of Christ exclusive of the grace and love which is infused into the heart through the Holy Spirit. They wanted to make justification smeared together with regeneration. And it sounds all technical and it sounds all theological, but what I'm trying to say is that it was very practical because the Reformers ran into it not by studying theology. These guys ran into it because of problems in the Christian life. What is the problem here? Where have we been deceived and misled? Why don't I have stability in my Christian life? Because I don't feel acceptable before God. I'm still putting fig leaves on. I'm fleeing His presence. Why can I step boldly into His presence? Because He sees me with the righteousness of Christ. Then I can come into His presence, and now He can begin to work in my heart. You can't get the carpet for the horse. In other words, infused grace received into the heart, according to Catholicism, regeneration and sanctification, is supposed to precede and be the cause of justification. When God justifies according to Rome, He is looking at actual righteousness in the regenerated heart rather than the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is hard stuff. But all I'm trying to get through tonight is there's a major shift between Protestant and Catholicism here. And it's not well taught and it's not well sensed in our own time. Let me show you why. Following down the rest on page 37, if you'll just follow with me as I read, within Protestantism, similar heart-centered justification teachings arose. One form is perfectionism, the belief that the heart must be perfect before justification can occur. During Methodist 19th century revivals, associates of Charles Finney taught, quote, nothing short of present entire conformity to the divine law is accepted of God. You talk about putting someone under the law. Another form is conditional justification, where a certain degree of holiness, usually left up to the imagination of the individual, is necessary to keep justification after it's been granted. Thus, Armenian theologian Robert Shank teaches, there is nothing about Paul's affirmation, Romans 8, 29, 30, which establishes that all who experience calling and justification are necessarily elect and will inevitably persevere. According to Shang, justification is good only as long as one is in Christ. 
Failure to maintain holiness leads to rejection in this view because justification in the first place is grounded in the spiritual condition of the heart. So, in Protestantism, you had the same thing arise in another way that had also arisen in Catholicism. It's not just peculiarly a Catholic problem. Another form, continuing uh, my text there, another form of Protestant heart-centered justification, although milder than the previous forms, occurs in certain deeper life and Pentecostal groups. Such groups downplay justification in favor of internal sanctification experiences. Preoccupation with trying to find a heart-centered, satisfying experience often causes the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work to eclipse Christ's righteousness in justification. Now, what happens here, it's subtle, but in the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I think most of us have read the New Testament enough to know when the Holy Spirit comes, who does he glorify? The Holy Spirit? What's the assignment given to the third person of the Trinity? To glorify whom? Christ, the second person of the Trinity. See that? There's a reason for that. Christ is to be the center of the revelation, not the Holy Spirit. Not denying the Holy Spirit does these things. Not denying that we should be thankful to the Holy Spirit for illuminating our heart. Pray at the beginning today. Thank you. And we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts. To what? Christ. So, Christ, the second person, is always to be the center. of. And when you get off in these things, what you find happening in practical illustrations is we get concentrating on a certain type feeling in the heart. Always looking, oh, I had that feeling once. And, and I'm just out of it until I can get that feeling back again. Well, you may wake up with a flu and you don't feel at all sanctified. Does that mean you don't have the righteousness of Christ? A, f- a virus has driven away the righteousness of Christ? Because your brain just doesn't feel great today? What a stupid way to live the Christian life. Up and down, up and down on an emotional roller coaster. And that's why this whole issue of the justification has got to be clear in our hearts. That we, God has passed a verdict. If we have believed in Jesus Christ, we have believed that God, like Abraham, what did Abraham believe? Let's go back and make it really simple. Tie this together. God said, if you come out, I will what? Give you do, 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 three things. Remember? And God says in that Genesis 15 passage, because Abraham believed him, he counted Abraham righteous. Did Abraham, was Abraham perfect? We know he wasn't perfect. Look at the text. Do you suppose Abraham had a feeling? I imagine Abraham went through all kinds of feelings. Fear, love, confidence, lack of courage. Then he had courage. Then he had this feeling. Then he had that one. Then he did this. Then he did that. But what was always true? He trusted God's program, His Word. I trust you. And because He could say to God, I trust you, meaning I submit to your authority. Not perfectly, but I trust you. You told me this and I trust you. God said, that's it. Verdict passed. And and Abraham didn't know anything about Jesus, but somehow he knew that God had accepted him perfectly accept him. Not 80%, not 20%, not, Abraham, I'm going to accept you this much, and then when you grow a little bit more, I'll accept you this much. If he had done that, quid pro quo, Abraham would never have grown. The only way he can grow is to be perfectly accepted from the start. Then he can grow. 
It's like having a child adopted in your family and you say, well, he's not really my child until he gets to be a nice boy. And then he's my child. Look, the guy's a brat. Does that make him less your child? No, unfortunately. The point is, the relationship is fixed. And that's the whole issue of justification. The relationship is fixed. Not because of great and wondrous things that I've done or you've done. Because of great and wondrous things Christ has done. And you see, when you have that view, you can't get fat-headed about the Christian life. Because it wasn't your righteousness carrying the boat, fella. You know, gal. It's not your righteousness. It's not your wonderful obedience. It's Christ. Something else is carrying you along. And that's Christ's righteousness and His obedience. Okay, conclusion then on the bottom of page 37. All forms of heart-centered justification, whether Romanist or Protestant, contradict the emphasis in God's call to Abraham. The primary concern in Genesis 12 through 50 is not some capacity inside Abraham or his seed, but the plan in God's mind in heaven. Not subjective experiences of the heart. And I'm not denying subjective experiences, folks. Don't, don't get me wrong here. We're not denying them. We're saying those are the fruit of this, not the cause. Don't confuse cause and effect. The subjective experiences are wonderful treasures, but they don't occur every day. But if you've been a Christian for a number of years, you can remember precious times you've had with the Lord. But those precious times, precious though they are, can't be what's holding you into relationship with Him. Those are the fruit, not the root. So it's not subjective experiences of the heart, but objective promises of God's Word form the focal point of the narrative. Abraham looks solely to God who calls those things which are not as though they are. And what was true not? He wasn't perfectly righteous, wasn't he? But God called him righteous. So it's Abraham believed in God who called the ungodly. Notice verse 8 of Romans 5. Maybe this makes a little more sense now. Familiar verse. It says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be delivered by His life. And this is the life of Christ in us and so forth. This is the post-Pentecost life of Christ. Okay, so tonight we've covered justification. It's another one of those great doctrines shown in the life of Abraham. Next week, in the next set of notes, we deal with the third and final area, and that will be our third and final class of the year. We'll meet the first Thursday after New Year's, after next week. We're going to deal with faith. And what our, what our focus wants to be next week is Abraham was a faithful one. He believed. And what we want to do is talk a little bit about what is biblical faith. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you do preserve us in Christ. And as we look at this great truth of justification, we're reminded that before we asked, while we're yet in need, Jesus Christ lived perfect, perfectly and obediently before you and therefore demonstrated that a human being in the power of the Holy Spirit could reach perfection. 
And we thank you that that perfection is the basis for our acceptance with you. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But you gave it to us when all we did was look to you in an act of trust. And we thank you for it and will be forever eternally grateful to you for that gift. In Christ's name, amen. And then we'll get you all out of here before nine. Yes. Romans four. They doubt it. Seriously doubt it. <laughs> well, this, this is well, the question here concerns the fact that in Romans chapter four, certain things are said about Abraham's faith and that of his wife. And we're going to deal with that in. By the way, it's dealt with in the notes, so I don't want to steal my fire. But um, there is that interesting passage also in Hebrews 11. It says the same thing. That uh, Abraham, I, mean, I think he even uses the word perfect. And yet when you read the Old Testament text, it looks like anything but perfect. And there's several ways of looking at it that way. Obviously, Paul knew the text and well read in the, in the text. So it wasn't like the Apostle Paul sitting there fooling us about what the text says in the Old Testament. Everybody in his audience that were Jewish knew the text. So, in fact, that's what Isaac means. In, in, in Hebrew, Isaac means laughter. It's God's joke. And it's, a, it's almost sarcasm because Abraham and his wife were laughing. She laughed when the angels were there visiting. And they heard her laugh. She thought they didn't because she was in back in the tent in the kitchen. Ha, ha, ha. And the, unfortunately for her, the angels were out in the front and they knew very well that she had laughed. And she said, oh, that's a good name for your child. Call him. <laughs> and so everywhere Isaac went, Abraham had to, every time he used the word, be reminded of his unbelief. So, so the, it's a very poignant feature in that story. And I just wish that this was a Bible class in Genesis so we could go through that story. But apparently the way the New Testament looks at things... It looks at how it all comes out and looks primarily at the heart. And what it's saying there is that God accepted his faith uh, as saving faith. And that saving faith, though imperfect in the flow of history, is counted as though it's somehow perfect in principle. And why that happens, we don't know. Other than the fact that it seems that there's a word in James, when James deals with it, you know, Abraham justified by works and so on. It, there's a little word there called fulfilled. Thus it was fulfilled 
that Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness. And the act was Genesis, not Genesis 15, not Genesis 17, but Genesis 22, when he had to take little laughter up and slit his throat. And so at that very point, when he did that, that sacrifice, that was such a stunning act of obedience that apparently the New Testament, the way it looks at that is, it looks at what it became under pressure. Yeah, and, and you see God assuring him, but Abraham is asking all along for assurances. And you see that throughout the story. It did not. Faith to Abraham did not come easily. In fact, if you could look at that Romans 4 passage, there's a very interesting aspect of that. And it's one of these neat things where the Scriptures has three or four levels. You know, it's true on a straightforward physical level, but it's also true in a deeper sense. Um, in verse 19 and 20, uh, without becoming, this, this translation says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. It's a little different than the King James. The King James says, I think he considered not his own body. But actually, in the Greek, that's not true. I don't know why the King James translated it that way. But it, it means that he did contemplate his own body. Precisely he was. He was very aware of his own body. He was very aware that uh, he was infertile and his wife was infertile. Uh, and he was 100 years old and dead in Sarah's womb. So there's two things in verse 19, both he and his wife were infertile at that point. And yet, he did not waver in unbelief. So, it's stronger when you think about the fact that he was aware of the body. And yet, he had periods when he did not believe. And the text reports that. But the, this is why I love the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, if you just read the New Testament, you could get the impression just from this, oh, this guy was cool. But then you read in the narrative, the real narrative of what really went on. And you say, oh, yeah, gee, that's familiar. And, and you begin to see him screwing up and, and not believing and doubting God and so on. And gee, you know, that, I fit right in there. That's good. So it's not that we get encouragement from sin so much as the fact that it just is real. The New Testament is quick to look at the principle. Yeah, except the Bible and it does picture it as kind of as an act of doubt, as a frustration, and it probably is part of that too. I mean, what you say is a, is a good point that that he's he's got it. He wants it now. But what is so interesting about this passage, I was going to say about these double meanings, is that if you think about it, what is a baby? A baby is a fruit. 
a fruit of, of, of procreation. Now, isn't it striking that the one person in all the Bible that's pictured um, as the man of faith, the crisis of his faith is precisely the problem of bringing forth fruit. And it's interesting, in Romans, when you get over in 6, where it's talking about the uh, old sin nature, the flesh and so on, bringing forth fruit, and he uses the word. And it's interesting that that word is used in a fertility sense. And I think that what's remarkable about this story, it's one of these cases, yes, the story is literal. Abraham literal and his, Sarah, his literal wife. But we know medically that it's a hopeless case. So whatever had to happen, God's promises came to promise that which could not be naturally produced. Now, what is that a picture of? But the fruit in our own Christian life. Out of the body of death, we, there can be fruit be produced. And I think it's such a powerful illustration that in a normal, everyday sense, that everybody can understand this story. It's so easy to understand. You don't have to be a PhD in theology to see the story. But the neat power of the story is that somehow an infertile man and an infertile woman produced a child. So that tells you immediately the signal goes up that the seed that God promises to Abraham and his lineage is going to be a supernaturally produced seed. And of course it does. And it culminates in the seed who is virgin born. The whole idea of the seed theme in the Bible is it's miraculous, it's miraculous, it's miraculous. But the survival of Israel, it's miraculous. The coming of the Messiah, it's miraculous. And finally, those who are born again in Christ and adopted into the Abrahamic family through Christ, it's miraculous. The whole thing from start to finish is miraculous. Unpredictable and miraculous. So it's an amazing story. But you're right, there's a tension, and we have to observe that. There's a tension between this quick synopsis this quick two-sentence observation in the New Testament and in 20 chapters worth of story. And the 20 chapters worth of the story give you a lot more to think about than just a few sentences. Yeah, I, I just wish that, again, I had time to go through the, the text here, but what was interesting, and, and this goes back to that 25-year test of Abraham, can you imagine this guy walking around, and every time, he was a businessman, so he had to sign, and they, those people signed agreements in, the, in that day, they usually did it with soft clay, and they make their business agreement in the soft clay, and they put it in an oven and bake it. And it's, it's interesting in archaeology, for every one find you find of a text, you find thousands of these silly little deals that people have made, and that are, they made scribs out of them in, in clay. Well, he had to press his name on that. And his first name, Abram, there's the word for father. And Ram is high or exalted, the exalted father. Now... This word is the word for nation. Now it's the father, and this word great can be attached this way, great father, or father of a great nation. 
And the funny thing was that he was given that name then before he had any kids. Just on the basis of the fact that of God's promise. Now, can you imagine the personal... I mean, if you were a scriptwriter, couldn't you have fun with this? Can't you imagine if you were a dramatist writing a script of having him do a business deal and he rolls his little thing out there on the, on the clay, soft clay, and the other guy looks at it and says, Huh? Father of a great nation. Where? Where's your great nation? And here he's this old guy that's infertile. His wife's infertile and he's walking around signing all the checks. Father of a great nation. Father of a great nation. So every time the poor guy went anywhere, he was reminded of this thing. This was not some random thing kept in the corner. This was a constant presence of life and probably very frustrating. You, you, you could, if you were, had imagination as a dramatist, you might even have him saying, I think I'll change my name back. Go down to the bureau and change my name back to, tomorrow. I mean, you could write all kinds of neat fun with this. So, it goes back primarily to the fact that the focus is not on Abraham's experience. The focus is on, is God's word going to come to pass? That's the focus. Anything else tonight? Yes, Harry. Uh, earlier, you had just given us a statement to add to it. Yes. Can you that? Yes. That was under uh, the election, 33. page 33. And the statement is, gospel preaching is not an impotent superficial act. It is the powerful call of God that creates the elect in history. Trying to get away from this kind of uh, hyper-Calvinism business where everybody lays down and God's plan comes to pass and I'm just sitting here. We're participants. We bring it about. The best example I can give of that elective power uh, in, a, in a perverted way is in the 20th century, probably the people who grasp the power of election, a doctrine of election of the communists. In the days when communism... Uh, fired students' hearts, like in Paris, France, the Viet Cong in Vietnam. And those, uh, those people had a belief, it was wrong, but they believed that history ordained their victory. And that belief enabled them to sustain horrendous pain, horrendous losses. When B-52s used to bomb the Vietnamese, uh, they dropped thousand-pound bombs. Now, out at Aberdeen here, we blow up uh, a hundred-pound charge and you'd think it was, you know, it rattles your teeth a little bit. You'd be around it. Now, when a thousand-pounder goes off, I'm told that the shock off the bomb, just the shock wave off the bomb, will turn your insides to jello if you happen to be within a quarter mile of that bomb burst. So you're a dead person just from the shock. Out to a mile, a mile and a half, it'll blow your eardrums out. And a lot of Vietnamese today that don't have hearing that lost their eardrums under our bombing raids. And the B-52s just drop one of these 1,000 pound, 1,000 pound, 1,000 pound, 1,000 boom, 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 just like this. And the next B-52 would be flying maybe uh, 1,000 feet on one side and he'd just boom, 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 boom like this. And that's the way we did it. And these kids, 18, 19, and 20, would dig down in their foxholes, some of them uh, deafened for life, and they keep on fighting, kept on coming back. And I read a CIA report where they interviewed some of these Viet Cong after the war, where they captured them. And what made you tick? And they found an amazing thing. 
that these kids were not, by memory, repeating marks. They had studied well enough and thought through the dogma that they could interpret news events, current events, and everything else in the light of communist doctrine. And they believed it. Now, that's the power of a false belief in election. Now, can you imagine the power down through history of a true belief in election? What do you think the martyrs of the church kept going? Because they knew the gates of hell will not prevail. You can burn my body all you want to. You can destroy me from the face of the earth and the church will go on. And you will not stop the church until Jesus Christ himself calls it back home. So you can, you know, face me with nukes. You can put me in jail. You can torture me. You can burn me. You can shoot me. Whatever. Go ahead. But you're not stopping the message of Jesus Christ. And it's that arrogance, if you want to put it that way, sheer cocky arrogance in the certain victory of God. That's the power of this election, this doctrine of election. That's the intended power of it. It's not to be something that we sit and theologically split hairs over. The practical point of it is, is this powerful assurance that no matter what happens, God's plan rolls on. You get casualties and people fall by the wayside, but the church goes on and will never be stopped. So, that's the plus side of it. And this justification doctrine that we covered tonight has enormous, if some of you have counseling experience, you know, in psychology, I think maybe from just a little bit we've said tonight, you can imagine the powerful effects this has psychologically. And why, when I asked a Christian counselor back many years ago, I said, if you take all the Christians that come to you with severe problems in your office, tell me by percent, who are the Calvinists and who are the Arminians? And by that I meant the ones who believe in loss of salvation, that you have to hold on to your justification, that sort of thing, versus a person who can be relaxed and realize that they're accepted by God, they're going to be disciplined. Man, we haven't got over that. God has got a, a nice paddle that he's very, used, very, very efficient at using. So it's not like it's a license to sin. There are many controls built in, but fear of justification is a wrong control. That is not the proper control on ungodly living. So the guy t told me, he said, I would estimate that two-thirds, over two-thirds to 80% of the people that come in my office come out of Christian backgrounds and they believe in loss of salvation. So it tells you right there. There's the behavior pattern. There's the record. Bad ideas have bad consequences. And the truth has a healing, powerful, restful um, impact. Anything else? Okay. We'll see you next week.